invite you to open up your Bibles with me. Turn to Jonah, the book of Jonah. Uh, This morning, I'll start with just the first three verses from chapter one. It's a very small book towards the end of the Old Testament. And so if you're having trouble finding it, um, you're more than welcome to use one of the Bibles in front of you. It's found on page 726 in those in those Bibles in front of you. Let me encourage you, if you bring your own Bible, just a bookmark uh, where this book is, because we're going to be looking at it for the back, about the next month and a half. And we're going to be turning to it often, and we want to give you the opportunity to get there quickly. Um, as a reminder, if this is your first time here, I do want to extend a special welcome to you. And uh, I know what it is like to walk into a building without knowing anybody and being unfamiliar with uh, where things are and whatnot. And so we would like to help take a little bit of that nervousness away, being involved in a new place. Uh, and I just want to invite you to come up and introduce yourself to me after the service is over. I'll be up here in the front, and we just want to extend that uh, welcome to you, that invitation to you to, to, to come and meet me. I would I'd love the chance to get to know you um, a little bit better. And so with that, let's go ahead and turn to God's Word together. I'm going to be reading once again just the first three verses of Jonah chapter 1. It says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we just take a minute to pause before approaching your word, would your spirit fill this place and move in our hearts, Lord? We ask that this would be, that these words would be spirit-filled words, that they would be spirit-filled preaching, but I also ask, Father, that there would be spirit-filled listening. Lord, I ask that this passage would uh, transform our hearts, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that our eyes would be opened where our eyes need to be opened, and that your spirit would move, and that there would be transformation in our lives. And in your holy name I pray. Amen. This morning we embark on a new journey together through the book of Jonah, together with the prophet Jonah. Uh, Together, we will travel to the ends of the earth and back as we spend the next several weeks with a prophet that many people actually uh, believe didn't even exist. Many people look at the miraculous nature of this book and they accuse the story of being merely allegorical, right? That it actually didn't happen. But let me assure you that according to scripture, which we have come to know and, and we know is trustworthy, that Jonah was indeed a real man. And this indeed was a true event. We actually find Jonah first, not in this book, but in 2 Kings chapter 14. Uh, Verse 25, we actually are introduced to Jonah, the son of, of Amittai, and we learn that he ministered to Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. 
And so this would, uh, for those history buffs out there, this would put Jonah's ministry at about the early to mid-8th century B.C. Uh, But that's not the last we hear of Jonah, and this book isn't the last that we hear of Jonah. We actually see him mentioned later on in the Bible in the New Testament. Matthew 12 and Luke 11, Jesus actually talks about Jonah. And he references Jonah as a real historical person. And so while this book is about a real man, a real man named Jonah, there's some confusion about who or what this book is actually about. For whatever reason, and maybe it's back to our Sunday school days, when we do word association, if I say Jonah, people automatically think that this story is about this great fish, or they even go as far to say that it was about Jonah and the whale, right? But this actually isn't a story about a great fish or a whale. The, the, the great fish is only mentioned four times in the entire book. It's also not a a story about the great city of Nineveh, which is only mentioned nine times. Surprisingly enough, the book isn't even primarily about Jonah, who's mentioned only 18 times. And so who is this book about as we look into this together? The primary character in this story is actually God. God is the central character in this book of the Bible. And as we read this book and as we study it together as a whole, you'll notice that the entire story is about him. It's about his character. It's about his nature. It's about his will. And the primary challenge for us as readers, right, who often sit in Jonah's seat as the human character in the story is that in light of God's character and in light of God's nature and in light of God's will, how do I respond? How do I respond to the call that God has put in my life? Because his character and his nature and his will always provoke a response. Do they not? You know, as as we dig into this introduction that we read just a few moments ago, verses 1 through 3, we we see a very brief and vivid picture that lures us into the story, reveals God's character, nature, and will, and we see how Jonah responds. And so let's take a look at it together, right? Starting in verse 1, what do we see right in the very beginning? We're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a very standard phrase that is often used when God is speaking directly to someone who he intends to use or involve in his mission. Uh, he, he wants to use Jonah in a special way. It's used over a hundred times, actually, in, in the Old Testament, that phrase. And the word of the Lord came to, right? You, you see it often. However, there is a difference between the word of the Lord coming to Jonah and the word of the Lord coming to other prophets in the Old Testament, right? One commentator writes that typically in other prophetic books, 
the word of the Lord actually references a message that the prophet is called to share, a specific message of, I want you to go to these people and share this message, this word of the Lord. But for Jonah in verse 1, he actually presents instructions to Jonah. God wants Jonah to take a course of action. He breaks into the silence and he calls him to go somewhere. Hence, commanding him in verse 2, arise and go. And so you can imagine, Jonah is sitting in Jerusalem. He's in the temple where, uh, where prophets would do their ministry in that time and minding his own business. And then out of nowhere, God busts in. In this commission to arise and go, there's a sense of urgency and there's a sense of interruption. This can be a real frustrating prospect for us as believers, but we must understand that God's workings are often one of interruption. We see this as a pattern throughout scripture, don't we? In Genesis 12, Abram is minding his own business in his homeland And then God interrupts and tells him to leave his homeland and go to a new land that God will show him and give to him. In Exodus 3, Moses is tending to the flock of his father-in-law. Moses is just doing his job, minding his own business. And then God interrupts in the form of a burning bush and tells Moses to go back to Egypt to deliver the Israelites. And then who could forget about Acts chapter 9 when Saul is on the road to Damascus on his way to arrest Christians no less and Jesus comes in in a blinding light and interrupts Saul and commissions him to go to the nations and preach his name. God's ministry is often one of interruption. I remember earlier on in my ministry here at FAC, um, there's one particular day that really sticks out because I, I, was, I was doing my job. I was doing ministry, right? Preparing for ministry things. And it felt like I couldn't go a half hour with some kind of major interruption, and near the end of the day, I'm actually in Pastor Mark's office and I'm, I'm like venting to him that I couldn't get anything done today because of all of these inter- interruptions. And he just kind of laughs at me, right? And he says, Mike, the interruptions are the ministry. The, the interruptions are the ministry and this is how God works. And I think this is a struggle for us. Because while we can know the general dealings of God, we don't always know the specific dealings of God, how he works. And we're fine with that until it involves us, right? It's, it's our desire to see God work specifically, no doubt, as long as it doesn't interrupt me or inconvenience me. We just want to mind our own business and let others do what God has called us to do. But here in verse one, in this instant, you will notice that the word of the Lord didn't come to Abram. In this instance, the word of the Lord didn't come to Moses. The word of the Lord in this instance didn't come to Saul. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. 
God says, Jonah, I am going to use you. I'm going to use you. And what is he called to do? Verse 2, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah is basically called to denounce the city of Nineveh, essentially to warn them that God was about to punish their wickedness. Now, Nineveh was was an enemy to the the Israelites, right? This would be like me as as a Browns fan being called to denounce the city of Pittsburgh for their evil and their wickedness, (laughs) right? I only joke a little bit. Nineveh, let me tell you a little bit about this city. It's roughly 600 miles northeast of Jerusalem uh, from where Jonah was. And and it was the most powerful city in the ancient Near East. And at one point, it was actually the capital of Assyria. The Assyrian nation was a powerful and extremely advanced civilization, but its people were absolutely corrupt. They had a reputation for their brutality against those who opposed them. It was so bad of a city that people in the world referred to it as the bloody city. And in Jonah's time, being an Israelite, the Assyrians were their worst enemy. In verse 2, God commissions Jonah to get up, And to go preach against Nineveh because their evil has come up against him. This basically expresses that the situation in Nineveh has grown so out of control. It's grown at such an extreme level that it has gained the special attention of God. Now, in his omniscience, he's always been aware of their evil, but now he's going to do something about it. He's stepping in now. I love how one of the commentators that I'm using writes this, it describes this. He says that the development does not imply that the Lord was previously unaware of that great city's depravity. Rather, the situation there so degenerated that his patience has become overshadowed by the mandate of his justice. There have been many times as a pastor as a youth pastor specifically, where I would see um, students or other, other congregants participating in things that they probably shouldn't be participating in, doing things that they probably shouldn't have been doing, but it would elevate to a certain point. It would get so extreme that there was a moment where I felt the need to step in as a pastor. I couldn't, I could no longer watch what was happening without stepping in and intervening. This is what's happening with God, right? The the Ninevites have reached a point where God feels the need to intervene. And he's going to intervene through Jonah. That is how important of a player Jonah is in this story, in that he is the active agent that God uh, intends to use to carry out his redemptive purposes. And so from this verse alone, we can actually glean uh, three things about God's character and his nature in verse 2. The first one is this. First, we recognize that his reign is sovereign over all the earth. 
in ancient times, it was believed that uh, each nation had its own God or its own gods. And such gods only ruled over specific, a specific nature of people or region. And Yahweh, the true God, the one God, isn't having that. Right? Isaiah 44, God says, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. He's almost taunting us as a, as a reader, challenging us as God saying, can you f- find something, find someone, find some kind of being that can compare to me. You'll be looking forever because there is none. This is, this is how powerful God is. And his reign is over all of the nations. He has full authority over all the earth. And this is Psalm 47, verse 8. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And so, yes, he is the God of Israel. Israel is his special chosen people. But this does not limit his throne. It does not negate his sovereign rule over all the earth. And more specifically in our study this morning, it does not negate his sovereign rule over Nineveh. That's the first thing that we can glean about God's character and his nature is that he reigns sovereignly over the earth, whether we believe it or not. Second, we see in this verse that God cannot stand wickedness and evil. Wickedness and evil go against his very nature and he will not have evil come up against him. How reassuring it is to know and how comforting it is to know that yes, God is patient and yes, God is slow to anger and he is a God of love, but he's also a God of justice. He will not sit back in his patience forever there will come a day that his patience runs out and all evil and wickedness will be the recipient of his hand of judgment. Many people struggle with this idea, this theology of God's wrath, but we have to understand that, that God has to punish sin. He has to punish evil and wickedness. If he didn't, he would cease to be God. If God is truly perfect, and if he is truly holy, then eventually he has to punish sin. This is a part of his very character. Now, there is a time frame where he's patient and he's gracious with evil and wickedness. You may think he's turning a blind eye, but he's actually expressing a patient eye. In his grace, he gives people the opportunity to repent. But there will come a day. There will come a day where his patience expires. For the Ninevites, that day was coming soon. And Jonah was called to go preach this truth. And this is the third thing that we can glean from God's character and nature in verse 2. That God as a spiritual, supernatural, and extraordinary redemptive purpose or plan for Nineveh, and he intends to use Jonah, an ordinary man, to execute such plan. God exhibits the extraordinary through 
the ordinary. Can God use the extraordinary, the miraculous, to to fulfill his extraordinary purposes? Absolutely. But most of the time, as you look through scripture, as you read through the stories, and as we walk about our life, most of the time, God works in a way where, where he uses ordinary women and men like you and like me and, and uses them to carry out his plans. And so in knowing that this is how God works, that this is how God typically carries out his plan through the ordinary, we're left with the question, am I willing to be an instrument of God? Am I willing in all of my ordinariness and all of my insecurity and all of my sin to be used by God? How do I respond to his call on my life? We have an example set before us in the person of Jonah in verse 3. I'll buy it not a very good one at that. You know, take a look at verse 3. God instructed Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh. And we read in verse 3 that he did arise and go to Nineveh. Or, sorry, he didn't go to, he arose, but instead he went to Tarshish. We know that Jonah is a true prophet. He's, he's a godly man, but his actions in this instant speak louder than words as, as he flees in response to God's instruction. He runs, and he runs, and he runs. In this verse, we can answer three questions that show us the substance of Jonah's response, that show us where his heart is. And the answers while simple in nature, show us exactly uh, where Jonah's at spiritually. And these are the three questions that we'll take the rest of our time to answer. Uh, from verse 3, first, where is Jonah running to? What is Jonah running from? And why is Jonah running? So let's walk through these together. First, where is he running to? We're simply told that Jonah goes down to the harbor town of Joppa, pays the fare for the ship headed to Tarshish and he leaves Tarshish was a city in southwest modern day Spain on the Atlantic coast and was considered the westernmost place in the Mediterranean world and so God tells Jonah to go east to Nineveh and instead Jonah goes west in the exact opposite direction Tarshish is actually mentioned a couple other times in scripture. We find it in Psalm 72. We find it in Isaiah 66. And both times this city is associated with far distant places, locations that are way off. And so, yes, it is a physical place that Jonah is sailing to. But there is a literary feature here that represents so much more. There is a spiritual reality that we see in the heart of Jonah. We see that Jonah is running away, premeditated, no less. Take a look at that but in verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. He, he had already decided that he was going to go to Tarshish, and he was very fortunate to, to find a boat that was heading there to Joppa. And then he pays the fare to go to Tarshish. This would have been a really expensive undertaking to, to pay for this boat. I'm a cheap guy. I'm not going to pay money to run away. And here Jonah is doing that, right? 
He, he, is, he is fleeing to, to Tarshish, paying money to do it, and he's getting on a ship that will take him as far from Nineveh as physically possible. In Jonah's geographical context, he is literally running to the ends of the earth to get away. Why so dramatic? Jonah, what is it? What are you running from that causes such an intense, dramatic response? That's our next question. What is he running from? Yes, he's going the opposite direction of Nineveh. But strikingly, we're told twice in verse 3 that he's not actually running from Nineveh, but he's running from the presence of the Lord. He's running away from God. Now, we've already established that God has a sovereign rule over all creation, right? And, and the, the reason he has a sovereign rule over uh, all creation is because he's what we would call omnipresent, He's present everywhere. That's what Psalm 139 says. Take a look at this. This is verses 7 through 10. The psalmist writes, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. This clearly teaches that you can't possibly flee from God's presence. And Jonah, being a very well-versed prophet, knows this. He even alludes to this later on in verse 9 where he's talking to the sailors. This giant storm hits, which we'll look at next week. And Jonah comes out and says, I I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah is saying, I recognize that God is present here, that I can't possibly escape the presence of God. So what is he actually running from? Chapter 2, verses 4 and 7 actually help us out a little bit uh, with this to understand the context of God's presence. For Jonah, in this book, the context of God's presence here is actually associated with the holy temple of Jerusalem. He's running away from the presence of the Lord in the temple because it was most likely the temple where God commissioned him. It's the temple where Jonah does ministry. It's the temple where he hears the word of the Lord. What is he trying to do? He's trying to escape God's voice. He flees to Tarshish, where there is no temple where there are no believers in the one true God in hopes that he won't be reminded of the call that God has placed on his life. Jonah's saying, if I can just get to Tarshish, a secular and pagan city that doesn't know nor honor Yahweh, that city will drown out the sound of God's voice. I may never be able to escape God's presence, but I can certainly try to escape his voice. 
I can try and forget him in the midst of another culture. It is a very common symptom today of people running from God to disappear from a believing Christian community. Because as we've looked at in recent weeks, we are the temple of God. The voice of God is presence in our midst as we gather together to study his word. And it is very frustrating for one running away from God to be around other believers because such people are constantly reflecting God. Such people are constantly reminding them of God's character and his nature and his will. And so they run from the context of the local church and they delve into the world. One commentator writes that many people in our day attempt a similar flight to Jonah into what he calls the culture of secularity. And this is where the passage hits a little bit closer to home for us. There are probably many in this room who are living in active rebellion against God. And when we get ourselves in a situation, in such a situation, we attempt to fill our lives with things that won't remind us of the presence of God because we don't want to hear his voice. We don't want to know and feel his presence. You know, we say, if I can just fill my life with things that will just mute the voice of God, that will just mute the Holy Spirit, then I can continue living on in my rebellion without the conviction that's coupled with it. I can deaden or silence the fact that I'm being disobedient. We, 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 we don't want to hear the voice of God because it brings us conviction, right? It brings us that nasty feeling or that understanding that I am doing something wrong, that I am living my life in a way that does not honor God. And I don't want to hear the voice of God and, and be reminded of that and be reminded of my sin. And so I'm going to take a page out of Jonah's book and I'm going to run. I'm going to run away and attempt to drown God out. In a sense, this becomes a, like a sinful defense mechanism of sorts. If I don't hear God, then I don't have to feel the shame of running from him. You may not be able to articulate it like that, but you very well know what's happening in your soul. When we do this, it leaves our soul in shambles. There is just an unsettling angst. There is a groaning in the deepest part of our hearts, in the deepest part of our spirit, as we try to run from an omnipresent God. You can imagine how frustrating life can be, how unnerving life can be to try and run from God and never really being able to escape his presence. We see this is what Jonah is trying to do. While he is physically running away from God, that is just a representation of what's happening in his heart. It's a physical flight that's just an outward expression of what's happening to Jonah spiritually. And so you may sit here and you say, I'm not physically running from God, but I am certainly running from him spiritually. 
I don't know why you're running. I would suggest that you stop. We do, however, know why Jonah is running. And that's our final question this morning. Why is he running? What has caused such a distaste for the presence of God and the presence of his voice? What is the underlying issue here in Jonah's heart? When God calls us to send a message or when God calls us to share the gospel, even with somebody in our context, this could be a scary thing for us, right? Because you sit here and you say, well, I don't really want to talk about God or Jesus around my family. And I don't really want to talk about Jesus with my friends because there's so much to lose. There's a lot at risk here. And I am scared that if I bring up God or if I bring up Jesus one more time, that they're just going to cut off the relationship. And so I'm scared. That, that is probably the primary reason we don't share the gospel with our loved ones, because we're scared. And so per- perhaps this is what Jonah is going through. Perhaps he is scared to share this message, because after all, he's supposed to go to Nineveh, who's Israel's worst enemy, that it's known for their brutality. But perhaps he's running for fear of his life. He's just too scared to share the message. But but as you look down the page, something doesn't quite add up. In verse 12, once the sailors that we'll look at next week realize that Jonah is essentially responsible for this storm, Jonah offers himself up. Jonah says, throw me overboard. He had no idea that a great fish was waiting for him. And so for Jonah, he was basically saying, I will lay down my life. I, you can take my life. I, I am not afraid. He was ready to die. I'm not afraid to die at the hand of the storm. So certainly he isn't afraid to die at the hand of the Ninevites. No, he's not running in fear. You'll actually find out why he's running later on in the book. Later on in the story, spoiler alert, Jonah makes it to Nineveh. And he preaches against Nineveh. And then God does an amazing thing. He shows mercy on Nineveh. And so you're thinking, wow, Jonah's an amazing prophet, right? But take a look at Jonah's response. If that was me, I would be thrilled. But Jonah, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, says this. Look at what happens. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Why is Jonah running? Jonah saying, God, I know your character and I know your nature and I know your will. And I know that if I go and preach against Nineveh, there is a chance that they are going to repent. And I know that if they repent, there is a chance that you will relent and that you would show mercy. You see, Jonah knows that while Nineveh's sins are many, God's mercy is more. And Jonah doesn't want anything to do with that. This is where Jonah draws the line. 
Because he wants in his framework and how he views the world and how he views those that are wicked. God, he wants God to punish those that are wicked and bless those that are righteous. And in doing this, God has gone too far with his grace and Jonah considers him foolish. This is a straight up protest by Jonah as he has no interest in participating in the redemption of Nineveh. And so Jonah says, if I can just get far enough away, maybe God will send somebody else to participate in such merciful madness. He's saying, I hate the Assyrians so much that I don't want anything to do with their salvation. I don't want anything to do with their redemption. Jonah is not aligning himself with the will and the ways of God. Instead, he is letting his view of the world, his perception of the world, dictate how he thinks uh, these things should be run. And this is really the main point of application for us. As believers, do we have such a view of the world that leaves no room for mercy and grace. You see, as believers, we have been commissioned in a very similar fashion to Jonah. God tells Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. We as believers in Matthew 28 have been told, therefore go where? Into all nations. And do what? Make disciples and unfortunately in our finite minds we want all the people who have ever wronged me to be punished we look at the world and we look at our biggest enemies and we look at the people who have wronged us the most and we want them to pay for what they did because that in our mind is what true justice looks like. And in my understanding of justice, there is no room for mercy. We are a biased kind and therefore we flee. We flee from being messengers of a merciful God. In those moments, as you look at the lost, as you look at your enemies and the people that have wronged you, I want you to remember the gospel, the fact that you were the recipient of God's mercy at one point and you continue to be the recipient of God's mercy. Remember that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. We were by nature objects of wrath, but God being rich in mercy made us alive in Jesus. How much more should we who have tasted God's mercy firsthand change our perception of the world? change our perception of the lost. Let's no longer view them as our enemy, but rather see them as one who needs the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. 
And so perhaps you look at this today and you find yourself running from God in one of two different ways. Perhaps you look at this and you say, I am like Jonah and I am unwilling to participate in the redemption plans of of the lost. If that is the case, please, please change your view of the world. Look at it through the, the lens of Jesus who had compassion and who had mercy on you. Or perhaps today you look at this and you say, actually, I'm not like Jonah. I'm actually one of the Ninevites. I'm vile. I'm wicked. I'm evil. And for the first time ever, I've discovered how sinful and how rebellious I am. And how could God forgive a person like me? Do you know how many people I've had that conversation with where they look at all that they've done, they've experienced such a great conviction, and they say, how can God have forgiveness on a person like me? You don't know what I've done. Let me assure you that God is rich in mercy. And it doesn't matter how far off you've gone, how long you've rebelled against God. His mercy, his grace, the blood of Jesus goes the extra mile to cover your shortcomings. And so would you take the opportunity today to turn to Jesus and say, Lord, while my sins are many, your mercy is more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, what a a wonderful story about how you used this prophet, a a prophet that was reluctant in his obedience, Lord, but you still managed to redeem this situation. I thank you, Lord, in my own life, how I have experienced such mercy, and I pray that there wouldn't be a single person in this room that hasn't tasted and seen that you are God and you are good and you are loving and you have been patient and you are are ready to be merciful, that you wait for them, not with a hand of judgment, but with arms open wide, Lord. Lord, I'm going to ask you that your patience would extend a little bit longer so that not a single person in this room would perish. Lord, I ask that your patience would continue so that everybody would come to know Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word and your redemption plan throughout all of history. Would we live that out in our life? As we go from here today, Lord, I pray that you would go before us and that you would bring opportunities for us to uh, explain your mercy to the lost. I lift up our offering to you, Father, as we take uh, up these offerings. Would you use these funds? Would we be good stewards of this and and use it in a way that's glorifying to you and use it in a way that makes Jesus' name known and glorified? And in your holy name I pray. Amen.